From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They've been shouting from the rooftops about that Colorado River deal, but it merely buys us time. We don't know yet whether this agreement is actually enough because we don't know how much rain or snow we'll get next winter or the next. Then dandelions are everywhere. And while they support pollinators, they could be a sign your landscaping isn't diverse enough. It's typically dandelions that come up in turf grass. So we have to change our perspective and our aesthetic, how we look at our landscapes. Also, the DU women's lacrosse team plays for an NCAA championship this weekend, but coach Liza Kelly doesn't equate victory with validation. I don't need a single game to tell me who we are and what we're capable of. Individual giving isn't the only way to support CPR. Learn about employer matching gifts, how to give stock or securities, and how to give through a foundation, all on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The states that use the most water from the Colorado River have agreed, at least in principle, on how to use less over the next few years. But it's hardly a long-term fix for a river depleted by drought and overuse. CPR climate reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis is here to explain what this development means. She hosts our podcast, Parched, about the Colorado. And Michael, it's nice to see you. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. It's nice to see you as well. The national news media and the Biden administration are framing this as a historic deal to save the river. I understand you're here to throw some cold water on that. Yes, I know. I wish I was here to tell you that our water future is totally secure now, but alas. So let me explain. This agreement involves Arizona, California, and Nevada. And they're saying we'll use a certain amount less water over the next few years. And that's good because all the water that starts as snow up in the Rockies gets shared among Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, 30 indigenous tribes, and the states downriver. Yeah, the ones you mentioned. Mm -hmm. If those downstream states use less, more water can stay in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the country's two largest reservoirs. And that's needed because they're supposed to be filled with Colorado River water, but they are both sitting near record lows right now. And that's jeopardizing hydropower production and the drinking water supply for millions of people. But there are a lot of unanswered questions about the proposal from the downriver states. Okay, Arizona, California, Nevada. So yeah, what's unclear here? First of all, this is just a proposal. And the other states that use the river say they don't even really know what the details of this proposal are yet. So Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming will have to understand what's being proposed before they fully agree to this plan themselves. As the upriver states. And the feds have to have a say in this, no? Yeah, they need to analyze it to see if it will save enough water over the next few years to avoid immediate catastrophe. Do we have any idea right now if they're even in the right territory for cuts? The amount of water they agreed to save is about a third of what the Fed said we'd 
all need to save to keep these big reservoirs from hitting critically low levels. uh, How does this check out then? This comes after a pretty wet winter and spring. So we have more of a water cushion right now than we thought we would when those predictions were set. Uh So we don't know yet whether this agreement is actually enough because we don't know how much rain or snow we'll get next winter or the next. But really big picture, I caught up with a scientist who studies the Colorado River who said it might get us through the next few years. He's cautious for sure. Mm -hmm. And he said it definitely won't solve the problem long term. And again, the bigger problem is we have fewer wet years than we're used to, more dry years. And we are overusing the Colorado River. And we're not cutting greenhouse gas emissions enough to reverse these trends. The river and its reservoirs have a massive water debt, and it's going to take a lot more than one wet year to make it whole. Okay, this agreement among California, Arizona, Nevada could potentially save enough water to buy the states more time to figure out a longer term plan. Michael, do you know how they'll use less water and like who in those states will use less water over the next few years? It's likely that most of the solutions that we've been exploring on Parched will contribute to the water savings that states are agreeing to. Okay. We're not going to build a pipeline from the Mississippi in the next three years. Mm -hmm. But using less water in cities and on farms certainly will be part of this. As soon as this summer, more Arizona and California cities may impose restrictions on when people can water grass outside, for an example. But what about the people who grow our food? So like beyond lawns and, you know, nuts and beef and avocados. Farmers may skip certain plantings and get paid to do that. And agriculture actually uses about 80 percent of the Colorado River. So soon you'll hear episodes of parts that are focused on how farmers can be paid to use less water or paid to make their water use more efficient. We'll also explore ideas around recycling our water to make it go further. This is like gray water. Right, gray water and wastewater. And all of these ideas take money. Money to pay farmers not to plant, money to build water treatment facilities, money to pay people to take out their grass. That's a key part of this potential deal. In exchange for using less water, states could get more than a billion dollars in federal grants from the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law, which is super helpful to get people to raise their hands to say, hey, I'll use less water. On Parched so far, you have not talked much about all of these negotiations among the states. We are, though, in this conversation, making some room for this kind of horse trading now. Yeah, we wanted to explain this development this week because it's all over the news and the back and forth between the states and the federal government has been building up to this moment for about a year now. California and Arizona in particular were under a lot of pressure from the Biden administration, who was pretty much threatening them, saying the feds would impose water cuts on those states pretty soon if they didn't come up with their own plan. So now they have. And it's a plan we're digging into with Michael Elizabeth Sackis from our climate and environment team and host of the new podcast, Parched. Michael, can you say more about what this means for the states that are not a part of this proposal? 
I am selfishly thinking of Colorado, but also our friends in Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico. Yeah, there are a few ways to look at it from the states in the Rocky Mountains. First, these states haven't had to agree to do anything differently yet because there's not nearly as much pressure on them. But long term, absolutely. All seven states and Mexico are in this together. And that's a second way to look at this agreement among the downriver states. It could be good news for the Rocky Mountain region that uses the Colorado River. Because if this plan goes through, the states upriver could get a few more years of certainty that they won't be forced to cut back themselves. Mm-hmm. That means they can more easily develop housing, sign on to energy projects, which need water, or plant fields more reliably. What's Colorado's approach specifically? The tack that Colorado is taking now is this. Let's review the plan those hotter, bigger states have come up with. And at the same time, let's start focusing on what happens after 2026. What's 2026? Right. If you're wondering why 2026... That's an arbitrary deadline based on some past agreements about the Colorado River. The date 2026 isn't really important in terms of how much water we have, but it's a deadline for what could be some uglier, more consequential negotiating about how much we all have to cut back in the future. Now, we've heard your reporting that farms in Arizona and California feed us here in Colorado and the whole country. Is that going to be affected if those states have less water in the next couple of years? It's too early to say, but we did talk with a regional farming leader in southern Arizona this week. He lives around Yuma. And even with the potential water cuts, he thinks they'll still be able to deliver all the lettuces and salad greens that people are used to seeing in grocery stores and in restaurants. Okay, I take some relief in that. So bottom line, how can I understand the news this week? Like in the, I don't know, in the big picture? Well, it's taken almost a year from when the feds first threatened to force people to use less water to get to a point where these three states are agreeing on how much less to use. And this isn't even finalized yet. If I've learned anything by digging deeply into the history and future of the Colorado River... It's that our backs really need to be up against the wall for the states and the feds to make any sort of big decisions. And that has some climate scientists worried. If the people in charge of our water can't make more proactive investments in technology and proactive policies to cut down our water use, then we're really at the whims of Mother Nature. And wet years like the one we're experiencing don't come around as often as they used to. Hmm. Michael, thanks so much for the perspective. Thank you, Ryan. Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports on water as part of CPR's climate team. She also hosts the podcast Parched. Find it on any podcast app. And we'll be right back with what the results of a mayoral election reveal about the politics and people of Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting about the environment in and affecting Colorado. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. When Yemi Mobilade won the Colorado Springs mayor's race last week, many outside the Springs wondered if his decisive victory marked a sea change for a traditionally conservative city. 
But the forces that led to Mobilade's triumph over Republican mainstay Wayne Williams are more complicated than that. Here to talk about that are our in-house experts, KRCC managing editor Andrea Chalfin and public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Yemi Mobilade is unaffiliated, but Andrea, is there any sense where he falls on the political spectrum? It is an interesting question, right? I mean, he was backed by the El Paso County Democrats and opponents called him liberal using that as an attack. But he's a small business owner. He founded a church and was a pastor. Uh, So there is what some might call traditional conservative interests there. He was endorsed also by some high profile local Republicans like Sally Clark, as well as former El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder. And both of them were at his watch party. So it sounds like his support crossed party lines in many ways. What have you been hearing from voters in the Springs? What's his appeal? I think that it's a combination of things. You know, I've heard people say he's just a get stuff done kind of guy. And they were also looking for someone a little bit different. And also, you know, uh, Yemi Mobilade campaigned really hard. He and his campaign were out knocking on doors. I think they said about 40,000. And one of those door knockers was Jeff Livingston, who was at Mobilade's watch party last week. His personality is magnetic and his his thought process is always to look at people as people. So that's fantastic to me. And Ryan, I was in Colorado Springs earlier this week talking to residents about the race. Several people said they liked Mobilade's message of community building. John Moxness is a person I talked to. He's an unaffiliated voter, but he says he typically falls in line more with Democratic views. He's lived in Colorado Springs for four years, so relatively new. He's an avid cyclist, and he wasn't familiar with Mobilade before the race. In my neighborhood, uh, people kept bringing up Yemi, that he was just an interesting character. Went online to go and kind of watch some videos and see what he was about a little bit. He gave me a good feeling. Now, Moxness said that was further solidified when he saw attack ads in the runoff against Mobilade. So those ads actually made him like the Republican Wayne Williams much less. I don't like the negative campaigns, I suppose. I just really don't go for that. That really turns me off to see stuff like that. Had enough of it with the Trump era. And just to add here that uh, Mobilade ran a pretty positive campaign. He didn't really go negative with what we've come to expect in attack ads. And I think, as we just heard, a lot of people appreciated that. And, and as I also mentioned, we've heard a lot about the grassroots efforts of that Mobilade campaign. There didn't seem to be that much uh, on the Williams side, and that may have had an effect. Where does Mobilade fit like in the history of Colorado Springs mayors? Well, he'll be the third person to serve as mayor after voters approved a move to the strong mayor style of government in 2010. He is the city's first elected black mayor, but he is not the first black mayor. In 1997, Leon Young was appointed to the post on an interim basis after Bob Isaac stepped down. Mobilade succeeds John Southers, who has served a maximum of two terms. And now Southers did back Williams in the race, as did five of the nine council members. But Mobilade says he's been meeting with them and is looking to have decent relationships with with everyone on council. 
And that really aligns with what I heard from some of the voters I talked to. They said they wanted the city and the mayor, everyone to come together and work on solving big issues such as housing, public safety, infrastructure, things like potholes. Chris King moved to Colorado Springs three months ago, so very new resident from Oklahoma. It was for his wife's job. And he said the rent he's paying in Colorado Springs is close to double what he paid before. Definitely a lot. A lot more expensive, so if there was anything that I would say that he could focus on is be working on the real estate uh, crisis we got going on right now. Prices are out of control. I would note, like several other people I talked to, King said he didn't vote in the mayor's race, and for him personally, he said he just felt like he was too new to the area. Benta, for eight years, Colorado Springs has had a mayor, John Southers, a former Republican attorney general, real leader in his party, and... You know, with this election, voters had a chance to go with someone very similar. Wayne Williams, former Secretary of State, high-profile Republican. But folks in the Springs indeed went in a different direction. What, What do you make of that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's all true. But I would note that the Republican Party has changed a lot since Southers was last elected Mm. and and first elected. And one big factor here is that people have to think about what's going on within the El Paso County Republican Party. And for the past few years, especially, it's been really torn apart by infighting. What's been going on? Well, there are deep Republican divides between more moderate or traditional conservatives, what's considered, you know, I don't want to say mainstream Republican, and then the very conservative far right. And that's true throughout the party. But in El Paso County, those divisions have been very acrimonious. There have been lawsuits, a lot of accusations. And Williams is on one side of that. He's part of a more moderate faction. And that group's been trying to get the county party chair to resign or be voted out for a number of reasons. And as part of that infighting, Republican officials in the county have been warning that Republicans are not as effective as they could be in helping get candidates elected. And so do you think that affected the mayor's race to have the House divided, you know? I, I really do, yes. And and after the election, the head of the El Paso County Party, Vicki Tonkins, you know, there was a statement released uh, from the parties in blaming apathy from some Republicans for this loss. And in the statement, it said there wasn't a strong conservative candidate that Republicans could unite behind. So basically saying Williams isn't enough of a Republican to win. It seems like a pretty harsh attack against a member of her own party. Well, if you recall, this whole race was marked by Republican on Republican attacks. So even though the mayor is a nonpartisan position, of the the 12 original candidates, 11 were Republicans. And there were some major attack ads during the general election. And the Williams campaign says the polling shows that these attacks really put him underwater with voters going into the runoff and made it impossible for him to recover. And I spoke with Carl Schneider. He's a Republican backer of Williams. He's active in local politics. And he says he was a little surprised at this outcome and that Republicans could not hold on to this seat. But he he did offer some reflections on why he think that happened. I wouldn't necessarily call it a seismic shift in Colorado Springs or even El Paso County. What I would call it is a common sense, logical electorate who is tired of the divisiveness in politics and are going to vote against it every time. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are taking the political pulse of Colorado Springs, perhaps broader El Paso County, after the important mayor's race there. Andrea Williams has been on the Colorado Springs City Council for the past four years. Do you think his time in that role may have, I don't know, turned off some voters given his loss? Yeah, in some ways, sure. Williams was really hammered over his support for a controversial new water ordinance. And then that ordinance was aimed at ensuring there's enough water for future developments. People critical of the ordinance say it basically gives one developer a big advantage, and they accused Williams of being too cozy with that developer. You know, Williams straight up denied it. But yeah, for some voters, his time on city council and his actions there may have counted against him. But I really do just believe there's an earnest desire for someone new. You know, I talked with longtime uh, businessman Richard Scorman. He's been involved in city politics since the 90s, and um, he's also unaffiliated, ran unsuccessfully in 2011 for mayor. He didn't endorse anyone, but he says he helped the Mobilati campaign behind the scenes. And he agrees with a lot of what Benta is saying about the fractured GOP, but says you also have to look at who Mobilati is. It was also that he wasn't a seasoned politician. And I think people are looking for that these days. But he's very charismatic. He's very personable. He has a way about him that uh, I think many people are embracing in terms of let's just get stuff done. But uh, I think that Yemi really uh, has that sort of pragmatic, I'm not going to get caught in a box, but let's think about things a little differently than we have in the past. Well, looking ahead, Andrea, what are the first challenges Yemi Mobilati will face when he takes office in Colorado Springs? Well, there are a lot of them, and there are some pretty big ones. So uh, many people that we talk to, they're really concerned about growth in the city, um, the pace of it, growing responsibly, sustainably. And Mobilati talks about maintaining the vibrancy of neighborhoods, which is always challenged by growth. Hand in hand with that is the question of housing affordability. That is a really big issue right now, like it is across the state in Colorado. Yeah, and certainly playing into the Denver mayor's race, which is in a runoff. Bento, finally, what lessons do you think Republicans and Democrats might take from this election in the Springs? Well, as we've mentioned, this is historically a deep red area, and El Paso County still is a red part of Colorado. But we have seen demographic shifts. There are three Democratic state representatives who, who represent part of the city. Governor Jared Polis narrowly beat his Republican challenger in Colorado Springs. So things have been leading up to this moment. Mm. I think Democrats are hoping it's the beginning of a move to the left in southern Colorado and more rural parts of the state. Certainly Democrats are praising this win. And even if Mobilade isn't a Democrat, it is very notable that Republicans did not win this race and coalesce behind a candidate. There were a lot of factors, but I do think the GOP will be really grappling with how to make their pitch to voters, especially those who are unaffiliated. And it's worth drawing a distinction between Colorado Springs and broader El Paso County. Those are two different political bodies. Yes, definitely. And electorates. Uh, Thank you both. Really appreciate all the voices you brought to us. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Thanks, Ryan. A picture of the mayoral election in Colorado Springs from KRCC managing editor Andrea Chalfin and CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Yemi Mobilade will be sworn in on June 6th, which incidentally is the day of the Denver mayoral runoff election. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the coach of a stellar Colorado team. And in this case, we're not talking about the Nuggets, but DU women's lacrosse.
I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. An informed and engaged community and nation grows stronger with access to credible and accurate reporting. NPR and CPR News teams are tireless in their efforts to deliver a full picture of the facts. Two organizations working together for a more informed public, one better equipped to recognize false claims and disinformation. Philanthropic gifts help CPR News and NPR do this important work. Explore ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. The Nuggets aren't the only Denver sports team making history. Four seconds remaining. Dirk to the pass. One second left. They're not going to get a shot off. And Denver has done it. They remain undefeated. They're 22-0. And going to their first ever semifinals with this 5-4 win over North Carolina. That win last Friday put the University of Denver's women's lacrosse team just two victories away from a national championship. The Pioneers are the first squad west of the Mississippi ever to reach the NCAA's Final Four. This Friday, they're up against top-ranked Northwestern University. DU coach Liza Kelly hopped on the phone with my colleague, Anthony Cotton. Coach Kelly, welcome to the program. (laughs) How are you doing? I am good, thank you. How are you? I am well. Excited about this week for you guys. The semifinal against Northwestern is on Friday. How do you pass the time between now and then? That is the question. I think everybody is just ready to jump out of their seats. So I think a little bit of my job this week is probably trying to contain the excitement. Um, I feel a little bit like a elementary school teacher prior to, to summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody bouncing around. Absolutely. Uh, so you're back in North Carolina again this weekend. The games are being played in Cary, North Carolina. And while you're obviously concerned with the opponent, I wonder how much scouting is involved in looking at the site where you're going to be playing the match. Oh, fair amount. I mean, we, we started looking at the site a couple of weeks ago just to, you know, we, we, we were pretty sure it was grass, but we wanted to confirm we, we hadn't played on grass really all year until we played UNC on Thursday. Um, so, yeah, we, we scout that area, scout what restaurants are around, check out the hotels, all of it. And so grass versus artificial turf, I know, like I, re- I can remember this past Super Bowl, there was a lot of trouble with the Chiefs and the Eagles getting the right cleats for the surface. Does that come into play for you guys at all? Yeah, it, it certainly can. I mean, my, my guess is that this surface is just going to be beautiful. Um, our, our, the surface at, at North Carolina was like playing on AstroTurf. It was so smooth and, and clear of bumps, so I, I think we'll be just fine. At the present time, you guys are indeed 22-0. and 0. Over the past, I don't know, let's say the last month, how many variations of the of the theme of how are you dealing with the pressure of being undefeated? Have you dealt with? We've talked about it a lot. And I, I think that what I've really tried to do with this team is turn the, the pressure around. And, and just my consistent message to them is that the pressure is on us as a coaching staff and not on them as players. They're good enough to go out and beat anybody. It's our job just to put them in position to do so and, and have the right game plan and have them properly motivated and ready to go. And my hope is that that alleviates some of their pressure of just being able to approach the game and have fun and um, let, let the adults kind of handle <laughs> the bigger issues. 
Well, that's interesting, too, because I know DU does a lot of work in the mental skills area. And I, I think that the thought is that it's predominantly for players, but how much mental skills work do you do and with your staff, and especially now given the stakes? Yeah, you know, I think we have um, just a, a just superior staff in my mind. We really, we get along really well. We complement each other's um, both strengths and weaknesses. And we really take kind of a holistic approach um, basically to our style of coaching, but also to how we approach each other and the team. Um, we, we kind of really sit down before practices and games and what, what do we need from each other today? What does the team need from us? Um, and, and, and then you kind of even dig deeper, right? You go on the individual level of, you know, who's might be having a bad day, who's, who's got too much schoolwork going on, um, you know, versus who's free and easy and can maybe stay out a little longer and, and take some extra shots. Is it kind of like a, a team check-in sort of thing on a daily basis? Oh, yeah, very much so. And that's something that we really try to, to preach to the girls about is that it, it's okay to not be okay. Um, it's okay to have days when, you know, you, you, can't, you can't quite meet somebody at 50%, but the more you vocalize that, the easier it is for everybody to be there to help you and, and continue the support that you need, um, you know, as it varies. And so over the 17 years you've been at the school, I'm guessing that's kind of a sizable change of late from, from indeed when you first arrived. You know, I've, I, I honestly, I don't know that I, that I agree with that. I think that Denver, um, one of the reasons it is so special is because they really try to coach the, the person and take care of you as an individual person and not just as an athlete or a student. Um, and so I think that our approach has always been, what do you need and, and how close can I get you to that? You know, there's some days that as coaches, we don't have a full tank either. Um, and so I think we just really try to get everybody to respect that you, you've got to meet people halfway and sometimes you got to go further and sometimes they have to go further. So back to the idea of being undefeated. I don't know of very many teams that go into a year saying, you know, we could run the table. Was <laughs> I'm guessing that may not have been the case for you guys. Uh, but as the year went on, you know, oftentimes coaches or people around teams will say, well, they should lose one before the tournament starts, <laughs> you know, to, to ease up all the pressure. Was there anything like that going on at all with you guys? I, I did have that, that comment made to me uh, by somebody in the athletic department a little late in April. And my response was, well, you know, that, that time has passed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're too far along now that <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, so, you know, I, I, I get that, but there's, this team has, has really proven their um, resiliency to, to be able to win in a lot of different ways, whether it's big margins or, or small. Um, they, they just seem to kind of find a way to, to get it done. Uh, hopefully we have two more games, but um, should, should we not, then I think that their, their body of work speaks volumes. You talked about the team and being able to win in a variety of ways. What is your the favorite thing that you've, come to feel about the team this season they're just they're just so gritty um they really just put their heads down and they're willing to go through a brick wall for each other I, it's just really impressive that both the camaraderie and love they have for one another when did you see that in essence like was there a particular game a particular moment where where it kind of crystallized for you you know i, I think once we put the schedule out they 
the, just their attitudes seemed to shift. They, they were really excited about having um, a couple of really top talented teams on our schedule. And I think that they just kind of really decided to put their heads down and, and, and just grind harder than I've seen them grind in the past. And then I think on the day to day, you know, they've, they've, they've had their share of adversity throughout the season, but they always find a way to, to really look at the positive um, and, and to work through it together. And, and I think that there have been a number of times where, um, the games have gotten tough, days have gotten tough, um, you know, things outside of lacrosse have, have been really difficult at different se- sections of the season, and they've really just pulled each other kind of through it. You played a number of ranked teams over the course of the year. Of course, on Friday, you are playing the top-ranked team in the nation, Northwestern. Uh, does anything change approach-wise and especially given the stakes? Like you said, it's it's up to you guys to kind of keep the players on the even keel. How will you do that? I think it's a, a couple of things. I think the first is to really enjoy the moment. This is this is a first for the program or the first team west of the Mississippi to make it to a Final Four and sport women's lacrosse, and they've earned that, um, and I want them to earn the, the fun of it, um, to be able to walk in there and, and be a little awestruck by the, by the whole experience. Um, but at the same time, then you've got to turn around and focus on a team that's been there consistently. And I think that there are challenges in playing a great team. There are challenges in playing a great team in a Final Four setting. And so I, I think that what we really need to do is go at it and be ourselves and focus on our play that's got us there. Um, the things that we're, we're not great at are probably not going to change in the next four days of practice. <laughs> we certainly need to improve upon them. But with, at this point, we really need to focus on our strengths. And so, obviously, winning a Big East championship, a number of Big East championships, making it, this is the fifth year, I believe, the fifth straight year you've been in the NCAAs. Like you say, this is another level somewhere where the program hasn't been before. I'm trying to envision like like the movie Hoosiers when they walk into the gym and they <laughs> and they, they measure the rim. Hold us into the backboard. What is it? Fifteen feet. Fifteen feet. Strap put Ollie on your shoulders. Measure this uh, from the rim. Buddy? How far? Ten feet. Ten feet. I think you'll find it's the exact same measurements as our gym back in Hickory. <laughs> okay, let's get dressed for practice. Like, what, what kind of, how can you get that point across that indeed in many ways... This is what we've been doing all year. This is what we've been doing for the last five years. I think that we've been in pressure situations all year. I mean, you brought up the undefeated season. I, you know, I, I can pretend that they don't think about it when they go into a game, but I know they do. Um, you know, having to win the conference championship, having to getting the opportunity to host at home and, and knowing we had to win both games, going on the road and playing UNC. I mean, they've been in big moments. They've been in tight games. Um, I think that it's both a enjoy this moment on Friday um, and, and hopefully on Sunday, but also understand that they, they're playing in the same wooden gym that you're playing in. <laughs> you know, they, it's the same field, it's the same sticks, it's the same uniforms. 
you know, they're going to have this, the same shakes that you're going to have. And it's really about conquering it, um, being out there together. The same wooden gym. That is DU women's lacrosse coach Liza Kelly speaking with my colleague Anthony Cotton. Their conversation resumes shortly. First, Denverites Rebecca Tauber spoke with Pioneers fans about what the team means to them. Do you have any favorite players on the team? Trinity McPherson. We actually just met her on Friday, and Maybe she said she with her this summer. yeah she said she she could summer coach me. Of course, the men's team always pulls more, more of a crowd. But, you know, I am so excited to see this team get the recognition that they deserve. I mean, they were third in the country, now they're fifth. And I'm just so happy that people are, are truly recognizing how much women can, you know, what they can do to the sport and how far they can take it. And I'm just happy for them to get that recognition. It's a great program, and Liza has worked so hard to get it where it's at. The kids love her. We love her as parents. She's a she's she an awesome really coach. She deserves is. it. We heard one of the fans refer to the men's program, which is coached by Bill Tierney, a legend in lacrosse, who has won seven NCAA titles, including one at DU in 2015. How do you navigate that? How have you navigated that? You know, I think that what Coach T has done uh, for lacrosse in the West is has helped us immensely. I, I, you know, I think that he really helped transform both of our programs, um, both with the culture as well as just the standard of excellence at, within the athletic department. So, you know, I, I, at times it certainly can be frustrating that, you know, that people think of the men's lacrosse team first. But as long as they're thinking of Denver lacrosse, I'm, I'm OK with it. Looking at your roster, you're you're from Maryland. A number of your players are from Maryland. You're living and working in Colorado. The putting together of a roster and of a program to sustain long-term success. Do you go into it just saying, I'm just going to get the best players I can get from wherever? Or was there any kind of tug about, well, we only have one Colorado player on the team? How do you meld those two thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that we we love Colorado players first of all, um, and I think it's just a little bit of a of a cycle at times. There are times where we have many more. We graduated three kids last year that have roots in Colorado, um, and this just happens to be a year where we don't have as many. But I think from a recruiting philosophy, we just want people that are passionate about what we're doing. Um, I don't believe in an oversell. I'm not going to, if I, you know, if I get you on the the phone and you tell me it's too far or it's too close, as a lot of the Colorado kids will say, then we kind of stop the conversation. I I want you to want to be here because Denver's the right school for you. We're the right coaches and the right team for you. Uh, Not because I had to make promises or kind of big borrow and steal to get you on the roster. Right. But you are, you're kind of looking like Maryland West out here. You know, I suppose this year we have a lot of Marylanders, but I actually really pride ourselves on the fact that we have kids from Canada and Texas and Colorado, Minnesota, California, uh, Ohio. You know, I, I think we go up and down the seaboard, Florida. We've got our first from North Carolina. So while we do have a large senior population from Maryland, I, I think it's more of where we are. Everybody else is from that's really important to us as well. So at this point in time... Would you say we are a national caliber program 
Or do you have to win at least one more game before you feel comfortable with that? I think we've been a national caliber program for 10 years. Um, I don't need, I don't need a single game to tell me who we are and what we're capable of. Um, I think getting to this final four is, is, you know, we had to go perfect to get here. And I think that's maybe a problem within the system is that there are teams that I think get maybe easier rides um, because of the East coast bias. And I think that for us to host a, a first round weekend, we had to have an undefeated season. Um, and I don't know that that's really fair to ask of a team to do. I think that, you know, we can't control who we play in conference. We traveled all over the country to challenge ourselves with the hardest schedule we could put together. Um, and we crushed it. And so I, I don't think that we need to beat any one team in any one situation for anybody else's opinion to really matter. Again, that is University of Denver women's lacrosse coach Liza Kelly speaking with Anthony Cotton, senior producer here at Colorado Matters. The Pioneers seek their first ever national championship this weekend in North Carolina, meeting top-ranked Northwestern. Still to come, what to do about dandelions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado is west of Tornado Alley the strip of states where tornadoes are most likely to form. And yet, the county in the U.S. with the most twisters is in northern Colorado, Weld County, with nearly 300 tornadoes since 1950. Metro Denver is not immune either. Mid-June 1988, a rash of severe thunderstorms produced six tornadoes in one afternoon at rush hour. An F2 uprooted hundreds of elm trees in northeast Denver, while an F3, with wind speeds up to 200 miles per hour, damaged buildings downtown. Nobody was seriously injured, but among those who survived, a golfer thrown 40 feet, a woman who was sucked through a convenience store window while holding a baby, and a man who clung to a telephone pole in winds strong enough to rip off both of his shoes, a sock, and his shirt buttons. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health, breathing science is life. My neighbors are moving. I really like them. I want them to get a good price for their condo. And so the curb appeal of our building became super important. Once the rain subsided, we did some major mowing. And relief, all those pesky dandelions were gone and then reappeared almost instantly. I shared my woes with dandelions on social media, only to hear from a bunch of folks, leave the dandelions be, they're good for pollinators, I was told. So I thought this would be a nice opportunity to hear from the People and Pollinators Action Network. Joyce Kennedy is executive director. She's based in Denver. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Are dandelions indeed important for pollinators and why? I really should start the conversation by saying we should be primarily focused on using native plants and thinking about Colorado scaping. It's a new term that I find native plant folks using, and thinking about the plants that belong here and planting those to feed the pollinators. Mm. I feel like this is a way of telling me that dandelions are not native. They are not a native species, but there's definitely more to say about dandelions. (laughs) The second thing I would want to say is that we do have to get away from this idea of the pristine lawn. And I think we're hearing this more and more, which is good. 
but we still have an awful lot of turf grass in Colorado, and that certainly doesn't belong here either. And it's typically dandelions that come up in turf grass. So we have to change our perspective and our aesthetic, how we look at our landscapes. And so that's kind of the number two point I would make. Well, more fundamentally, how important are dandelions for pollinators? Because I I care about looks, uh, but I also care about bees. Yeah, yeah. And we do have a lot of grass, so we, we have to deal with it. If you're comparing dandelions to grass, dandelions are going to feed more pollinators because grass really is a desert for pollinators. There's no food for them there. Mm. So especially in the early spring, when there's very few sources of nectar and protein for our pollinators, dandelions do provide a vital source. And so I think that's why you'll often hear from advocates saying, oh my goodness, leave the dandelions for the bees. However, we can think about planting a greater diversity of early season plants so that we can feed them in other ways. Mm. So it does come down to your aesthetics to some extent. So it's hard to say whether they're bad or good. It's more they do provide that early season value to pollinators. All right. What are some alternatives, early season, as you say, that can attract and feed and help pollinators thrive? The plants are fairly limited that you can have early season, but they do exist. And I would really direct people to some lists so they can really choose the appropriate native plants for their region for the early spring. And you can get those from the Colorado Native Plant Society. You can get them from the Xerces Society. And some of the early bulbs can be helpful as well, crocus and so forth. You know, it's fascinating to hear that green lawns in the traditional sense are essentially deserts for pollinators. So I I think of them certainly as being thirsty. I think of them as being somewhat out of place in the high desert, uh, but they're also just not that good for bees and butterflies and other pollinators. Exactly. And that's why we have to be moving away from them. We'll often talk about, you don't need to remove all of your turf at one time, but maybe start with small beds, removing some turf and planting a variety of flowers for them so that you're taking those steps. And as soon as you provide some habitat for bees, you're going to find that you'll have way more diversity in your yard. And that's so enjoyable and entertaining. Just taking a step back to the idea of when you do see a lot of dandelions, it does make me think, well, that's a place that fewer resources are being used, pesticides aren't being sprayed, And of course, that's going to provide a healthier environment for pollinators and for people, of course, as well. Okay, Joyce, it's the million-dollar question. The the dandelions, they just look so bad. I I mean, I hate to say it, but my neighbors are trying to sell their place right now. The lawn after the rain with the dandelions everywhere. I mean, it almost looked like the building was abandoned. They're tremendously satisfying to pull out at the root, I'll note. Should we be getting rid of our dandelions? 
there's a balance there. And since you want your property have good curb appeal, you have to fulfill that need. So I would suggest maybe leaving a few until you have something blooming and then digging out the ones that you just feel put your landscape over the edge of this aesthetic that you find pleasing. There are more and more really useful tools that help you dig out dandelions. And, you know, it's an easy probe that you push in and you're more likely to get the entire root. So I'd recommend those. The other thing would be letting them bloom and then pulling them up before they go to seed. Silly question, but what is pollinator season? Really, the entire growing season is the pollinator season. They start to emerge when temperatures, you know, suit them. And we always talk about not really disturbing your gardens and landscapes until our temperatures are consistently above 50 degrees, because that is when they begin to emerge. I just started cleaning up my garden this weekend so that I wouldn't disturb anything until they come out. But of course, if there's a warm day, you will see pollinators. And then we we need to be thinking about having something blooming until really the first hard frost, because hmm. there'll be pollinators that are around until that time. Do you want to name a few other ways I can help pollinators, which I, I do want to underscore are not just bees, you know? Yeah, we really encourage people to plant lots of flowers because that's what feeds them. Please don't spray chemicals on your lawn because that is what's having a huge impact on the health of our pollinators. And we continually remind people that it's not just the pollinators. It's, of course, our pets and our human health and children are particularly sensitive to pesticides. You can also talk to your neighbors, really sharing plants sharing tips on how to manage your landscapes. We do native plant swaps along the front range. Folks can come and if they don't have something to trade, they can still come and get a few new plants. That can be really inspirational to new gardeners. And um, certainly talk to your local and state and federal officials about changing policies so that we can better protect pollinators overall. Okay, before we go, Joyce, do you know where the name dandelion comes from? No, Ryan, I hope you looked it up. I did. (laughs) You knew that I might. You know, it's French for lion's tooth, dent de lion, dandelion. So there we go. We both learned something today. Joyce, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Pleasure. Joyce Kennedy leads the People and Pollinators Action Network in Denver. And that's is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to these busy bees. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.